to everyone, I want to say Happy New Year. It's exciting to have turned the page and enter into 2013, and we have so much to give thanks for what God did in 2012, and at the same time, look forward with great expectation and anticipation on what He may have for us in this new year. Well, I don't know about you, but there is something that I love about beginnings, there's something about the newness of, of, of a fresh start. And that's why I love this time of year. The first week of January is a, a time to kiss goodbye to, you know, what happened in 2012, whether there were many ups or many downs or probably somewhere in between. We can kind of say goodbye to what happened there and look ahead and dream about new possibilities for 2013. And for many of us, we can hope that the things that we wanted to accomplish in 2012, we can actually kind of get around to in 2013. So it's a good time to just kind of pause, reflect, look back, but also look forward and dream and pray and think about what we want to see God do in the coming year. And so I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I actually, for one, love to think about maybe some goals or if you want to call them resolutions for the new year. Now, I, I know that probably many, if not most in the room, tend to be somewhat jaded, somewhat pessimistic about the worth of resolutions because inevitably how many of the resolutions that we set, you know, from childhood to adulthood, you know, have we set them and not quite measured up and, and, and seen them come to fruition, right? I mean, that's the, the vast majority of the resolutions we set. Not A lot of times they don't really come to fruition. At the same time, I don't see that as a reason to hold back and say, you know what, God, I'm not all together. I don't have it all together, and I need change in my life. And so, God, what do you want to do in my life, and, and how can I begin to work toward that change by your grace, empowered by your spirit? And so Marcia can tell you, we had an extended vacation. It's really good to be back. We were gone for two, almost two weeks uh, over Christmas, and so I've missed you. We've missed you. But when we were gone on vacation, I almost wore my sweet wife out talking about goals for 2013. I, mean, I was thinking about personal goals, thinking about family goals, thinking about ministry goals. And so I was just, you know, listening to the power of incremental change. You know, what can happen if you just do little bits and pieces over an extended period of time to see this great change happen in our life? Listen to a podcast on re-engineering your morning kind of routine, and that hopefully is going to push me to be more devoted and disciplined to God this coming year. Learn about SMART goals, and I want to tweak this and call them SMART-uh goals, okay? Uh, SMART goals are specific goals, okay? They are measurable goals. We need to know if we actually reached a goal. They can be actionable. They should be actionable. In other words, when you write a goal, it's good to start with a verb that actually gets us doing something. Uh, they need to be realistic, okay? Specific, measurable, actionable, realistic goals, I mean, it's good to dream. We want to get outside of our comfort zone. We want to set a realistic goal that we can actually reach. They need to be time-bound so that they're just gone forever and we never actually reach them. And then we added an A this morning before uh, church and that they, we need to be accountable for these goals, right? We need to share them with, with others. And so, I mean, I've been, I've been jacked up about the possibilities of goals. In fact, I found a great app. It's also on a website. If you don't have an iPhone, you can go on the web and use it. This is called I Run, You Run. All right, and what 
I run, you run allows you to do is it, it, you can set seven, up to seven different actions, and then you can track those actions through your week, and it kind of keeps your score. So if you're competitive or just really want to, you know, you can email your friends, and they can encourage you and hold you accountable. And so they say, actually, at the top there that they're about actions, not goals. But the reason I'm using this is because I need to implement certain actions to actually reach my goals and resolutions. And so I was tempted to take a little screenshot of my phone and throw my goals up there, but I don't want to jump in just yet with all 100 of you to hold me accountable just yet. Uh, but a few people will definitely know all of my goals. And if you want to hear some, feel free to ask me after the service. But, but what about you? Do you have some new goals? Do you have some new resolutions? See, our, our resolutions, this is quite obvious. Our resolutions reflect our priorities, right? What you, what you want to change about your life, about yourself, they're going to, to, to tell you something about what you are prioritizing for this new year. And our passage of, in, in the Gospel of Luke this morning is going to address what should be our two greatest priorities in life as we seek to live our life before the face of God. And so let's jump in to Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided there in the rows, it'll be page 869. I want to read the first four verses to get us going in Luke chapter 10. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He said, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so we could argue that the lawyer here poses the greatest question that anyone could ever ask in life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he is doing what hopefully all of us are, have either done at some point in the past or maybe doing now. He's asking a big question in life, those ultimate questions. You know those questions I'm talking about? How did we get here? Why are we here? What's wrong with our world? Is there something more to life? And if there is, how can I know it? How can I experience it? How can I attain it? And the assumption here is that the lawyer says, hey, there's something more to life. I've got, I'm that far, but, but how can I attain it? That's the last ultimate question that he's wrestling with. So the lawyer asks a great question, but he doesn't ask the question with the greatest heart. Because Luke tells us that he asked the question, verse 25, so that he might put Jesus to the test, which is never really advisable. Because Jesus is all wise, all the treasures of wisdom are found in him. And so Jesus is kind of the smooth operator, as we will see, and he pushes it back to him and says, well, you're the law, you're, you, you know God's word. If anybody knows God's word, it's you. How do you read the law? And the lawyer answers wisely. He says, 
quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, he says, well, love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you know what, you got it. That can be the end of our conversation. You go do this and you will live. If you really love me, if you really love your neighbor, then you know what it means to, to know me and to trust me and to have life in me. But what we're gonna find is that the lawyer didn't stop there. It says in verse 29 what? It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, I love what Luke is doing here. He's ordering his account so that we are going to receive some really helpful answers to these two great priorities that we should have in life, to love God and to love our neighbor. And Luke is going to actually work backwards and address how we should love our neighbor and then how we can love God. So he starts by telling a parable that will explain what neighbor love should be all about. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I know that that's language that's even in popular culture. Oh, that's a Good Samaritan. He was a Good Samaritan. And most of the time we've reduced this parable. Let's not do this today. We reduce the parable to simply a good work or a good work that helps someone in need. Now, the parable is not less than that but it is so much more. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus teaches us to be a neighbor by showing mercy to everyone. Let's go ahead and read verses 30 through 37 of Luke 10. He says this, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Let's pause right there. There was a road, a 17-mile road that, that took a person from Jerusalem, was on a mountain, down to Jericho. And you can imagine, in that day, it was quite dangerous to travel down this road because people would hide out in caves and crevices, and they would oftentimes uh, beat people and rob them and take their possessions and, and go on their merry way. And so Jesus is describing a scenario that could have been very realistic for people in that day. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
So let's break this down a bit, piece by piece. First off, we need to understand that Jesus is exhorting the lawyer and all who hear his voice, consequently us this morning, to, number one, be a neighbor. You see, again, the, the, the lawyer comes and says, well, who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself. He, he was looking for what we could call manageable righteousness. The lawyer was looking to limit his love. He's saying, you know, Jesus, it would be kind of convenient for me if I could define my neighbor as those that is kind of easy to love, easy to hang out with. And so what the lawyer was doing was he was looking to restrict his love, to limit his love. But what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't answer his question. He actually redefines his question and in the process reorients us to the depth of the second greatest commandment. Because what he does is he says, look, you look to restrict your love, limit your love, but what I'm about is liberating love to where we love without restriction, without limits. This is what Paul was talking about when he's saying in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and faith, self-control, right? And, and, and he says what? Against such things, there's what? No law. In other words, there's, there's nothing holding us back. There's no restriction. There's no seatbelt. There's no restraint. We just love and love as liberally as we want to. And God gives us strength. So the great question we should ask ourselves is, do we limit our love? Or do we love without limits? Jesus says, go, be a neighbor. Love without limit, without restriction. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you go and be a neighbor, and you be a neighbor to everyone. See, as we're reading the story, what do we expect? When we see and hear that there is a priest walking by down the road, so by chance a priest is coming along, and then a Levite, someone who worked in the temple, I mean, this is the, these are the representatives of God. Those who should understand the heart of God better than anyone, we would expect them not to skip across to the other side of the street and kind of, you know, turn a blind eye to what's happening to this person who's bleeding and beaten and left half dead. But that's exactly what happens. We're surprised by this, and make no mistake, the original hearers, the, the, the people who were listening to Jesus are, are so surprised to hear that a priest and a Levite would go by on the other side of the road. But if they were surprised by that reality, they would have been shocked by what Jesus says in verse 33. He says, but a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Let me tell you who a Samaritan was. A Samaritan was a person who the Jews would have looked down upon because of their ethnic and religious inferiority. The Jews felt like they were better than them. They were, they were more of a, a pure ethnicity, and they knew really what it meant to worship God. And so they despised and looked down upon Samaritans. They would not go help a Samaritan, and they would be the last to expect that a Samaritan would be the one held up as the example of a neighbor, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Do you see what he's doing here? 
Jesus the smooth operator, Jesus the all-wise teacher. He says, you're asking me who is your neighbor. And let me tell you that the person that you do not want to be a neighbor to, he is the one actually being a neighbor to everyone. Are you ever guilty of this? And I am. It's easier for me to love people like me. It's easier for me to hang out with people that talk like I do, that, that, that act like I do, that smell like I do, that love the same things that I love. But what Jesus calls us to is not a simple love that, that only reaches out to a select group of people around us, but he calls us to love, a love that goes well beyond our social circles that extends to the least of these, to the marginalized, to the people that we wouldn't be the first to go and love. He says, go and love them all. Jesus calls us to eradicate the category of non-neighbor. He says, be a neighbor to everyone and be a neighbor to everyone by showing mercy. After re-examining this parable, it seems truer to call this parable the parable of the merciful Samaritan, not the parable of the good Samaritan. The lawyer had it right. He said, the one who showed him mercy, Jesus says, go and do likewise. So we need to be people who go and love our neighbor by showing them mercy. And what we see as we read through this is a quite comprehensive understanding of what it can look like, not maybe every time, but what it can look like to extend mercy to those in need. We're going to see at least eight specific actions in verses 33 through 35. Number one, what do we see the Samaritan do? Well, number one, he saw him, okay? He saw him. One of the questions in reading this parable that you're going to take and wrestle with, hopefully, the rest of the week, is how on earth do I begin to apply this? Because if, if you're kind of out in the real world and you're kind of up on what's happening around you, there's no doubt that there's not just a couple of needs that are happening around you, but there are literally hundreds and thousands of needs that we could potentially go and try to meet. And so how do, we, how do we understand this? How do we apply this? And I think what Paul says in, in, sec, in, not, I'm sorry, in Galatians 6.10 is that he says, so then as we have, this is key, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So, so Paul says that we have opportunity. Now we should seek opportunities out, but what I love about the Samaritan is he was just going about life. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't on a mission trip. Not that there's anything wrong with mission trips. We'll take some mission trips around here, you know what I'm saying? We'll, we'll be about some deeds of intentional mercy. But I love what Jesus is saying. Look, this guy was just living everyday life. Perhaps he was waking up early, walking down to Jericho on some business. Who knows what he was up to, but he was just doing life. And so as he was going about his business, he saw him. Let me state the obvious for us this morning. We will never see what we never see. We will never meet the needs of which we are unaware. We will never meet the needs of those who are hurting if we don't get out into the real world, which is a word maybe for some of us who tend to be kind of homebodies, you know, if there are any homebodies in the house. We need to get out and, and see where people are hurting and, 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 and where they have need. 
And then also we need to take our eyes off ourselves, right? We're so prone to, to having our eyes self-focused and, and being so consumed with what's on the agenda, what's on our calendar, that we miss the needs of those around us. So the, the Samaritan first off sees him. Secondly, he saw him and then he had compassion. Walter Liefeld says compassion implies a deep feeling of sympathy or pity. We could say that compassion is the inner force produced by the Holy Spirit that drives us to merciful action. We can see someone in need, but we don't have compassion that drives us to merciful action, helping meet a need. What is mercy, by the way? Mercy is giving of ourselves to help someone else in need. That's a simple definition of mercy. But we'll never get to mercy if we don't have, first, compassion. When someone possesses compassion, they become acutely concerned about the condition of those in need. I love what Jesus, uh, it says about Jesus in Luke, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 36. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what we see about Jesus that we've seen in this travelogue is that he had so much compassion that he set his face toward Jerusalem and would go to the cross to die for us and for our sin. That's how great his compassion was. Not just a little sacrifice to himself, but complete sacrifice even at the cost of his own life. So we have to see the needs of those around us and then be moved with the compassion. Number three, I also love this one. He went to him. People in need need people to go to them. Love takes the first step. I think one of the greatest hindrances to mission, and hopefully this is not true of this church and is becoming it, the opposite is becoming increasingly true, but there can be a mentality, especially as churches grow, we should be warned that there can just be the expectation that you know people will come to us. But that mentality will bury the mission of the church. We can't expect people to come to us. We need to take the first step and go to them. That's what the Samaritan did. Let me just kind of put this in practical terms, all right? We're here for an hour and a half or less in a week. An hour and a half or less. That means we have 166 and a half other hours to be out there. Who needs sleep, right? Let's embrace insomnia in 2013, right? Let's be out there and be about the business of being a neighbor to those around us. So he saw him, he had compassion, he went to him, and he met his physical needs. We knew that the man was beaten and bleeding. He was in desperate need of medical care. So the Samaritan binds his wounds. He takes uh, wine, which should have had a medicinal effect to bring healing to him, as well as oil that would have probably provided some level of comfort to this bleeding and dying man as he laid there in pain. He then proceeded, okay, here's where maybe it begins to hurt a little bit more. He used his own resources. He took his own animal and he puts the man on his animal to, to carry him to an inn. 
which takes us to step number six. He provided shelter and additional care. Not only did he take him to the end, but he cared for him while he was at the end. Added to that, he used his own financial resources. He gave financially. He paid for his stay. And what he says then, which takes us to the last uh, observation, is that he went the extra mile. Mercy is always willing to go the extra mile. It says that, that he said to the, to the innkeeper, hey, if, if there's a greater cost at the end of this whole deal, then I'm willing not just to pay for tonight, but I will keep paying for the extra nights when I come back. Here's a little lesson in, in, in building a relationship with someone. You want someone to love you, to grow to love you, don't just go one step. Don't just make one visit. Don't just go, you know, one act of mercy. But follow up the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. Go the extra mile. Make that second phone call. Write that extra note. Go by and see someone the fourth and the fifth time. That's when they're going to know. Not that you just care a little bit, but like that you're really for them. You're really concerned about them. And you know what's really cool about that? Is when we display the gospel in those kinds of ways, when we are radical in our acts of mercy, people might just be a little more willing to hear why we would do that. You know what I'm saying? Opportunities surface to not only just to display the gospel, but also to declare the gospel when we are willing to go the extra mile. The Samaritan displayed a radically other-centered kind of love. He risked his own safety, his own reputation even, possibly. He destroyed his own schedule, perhaps the most difficult piece for many of us. He took great expense to himself so that he might help a stranger, a stranger in need. What a great apologetic to the gospel. When we start to love like this, love without limit, giving radical mercy and generosity to others, do you not think that, that this might lend some credibility and validity to the power of the gospel, the reality that Christ actually does bring change to our lives? And man, how we need this. If you keep up with the news at all, you know that, that people oftentimes don't experience neighbor love, they experience neighbor cruelty, right? What's happening in India and what seems to be happening in Ohio is tragic. And what people need in those moments is for people, the people of God especially, to come alongside and to extend kindness and love and mercy and compassion. So the parable of the Good, the, the good Samaritan teaches us to be a neighbor to everyone by showing mercy. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to fulfill the second greatest commandment. But then, number two, he's going to then teach us a little bit more about what it looks like to love and be devoted to God. And we see this picking up in verse 38. It says this, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. So verses 25 through 37 teach us to be a neighbor to everyone by showing mercy. Verses 38 through 42 teach us to listen to the word of Christ with a teachable spirit. Again, he's taking these, working backwards. He's he's showing us how to love our neighbor and to love and to be devoted to God. And there's actually a, a, a unique connection as we dig a little deeper here because what's happening here, you would think as we read this that Martha is what? Martha's being a neighbor, right? She hosts Jesus. Hey, Jesus, welcome into my house. Let me take care of you. Let me serve you. Let me make you this awesome meal that you can enjoy, and you can just enjoy being in my home. Martha was incredibly hospitable. She's being a neighbor, right? And I think at one level, we would say, absolutely, sure, she's, she's being a neighbor. But... It seems from what Luke tells us and how Jesus responds to her request, if it's not a mandate, is that while she was doing good, she was not doing what was best. See, I want to give us a few warnings, three potential problems about our serving. This is really important for those of us in ministry, by the way, and that should be all of us if we're part of this church, not just leaders, everyone. We talk about that all the time. But for those of us in ministry, serving can lead to three pretty huge problems. Number one, serving can become a distraction to our devotion. Luke says that she was distracted, right? Jesus responds and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. So, so her serving, even in her serving, she was distracted from who she had, should have been truly devoted to. And this can happen to any of us. I mean, I think this particular example is, is good for those who are ultra-hospitable people who really love to serve, love to be about serving others in ministry. I mean, my mother is a great example of this. Okay, my mom's going to listen to this podcast, all right? She's like one of eight people who listen to our sermons every week. But, you know, that's how it is, L- loving mom. Uh, so I'm not hating on your mom, okay? I'm just, you know, people like you, not necessarily you. Um, so, so she loves to serve, you know what I'm saying? We get there on December 20th, and it's like elaborate breakfast, elaborate lunch, elaborate dinner, dessert every night of the week. Most of the time, a new dessert. It started with Parker's butterfly birthday cake, moved to my birthday chocolate cheesecake. We had PB pie. That was for Marsha, peanut butter pie. Um, We had some carrot cake. We had some other kinds of, you know, you get the point? And so she just loves to serve, man. She's always in the kitchen, cooking it up, whipping it up, dominating things in the kitchen, And that's wonderful. Thank you, Mom. Love you, Mom. But sometimes we can be so consumed with action, with doing, with productivity, that we can miss what is best, what we should be ultimately devoted to. And this is my problem so oftentimes. Listen, I am not driven by a bottom line of money. It's really just in my heart. I think I can share that before God with a clear conscience, pure heart. I'm not driven by money. What I am often driven by is productivity, action, accomplishment. 
How many people showed up on Sunday? How many things did I get done this week? And all of a sudden, I get distracted by serving God to the detriment of my devotion to God. So serving can lead us to being distracted from what is best. Number two, serving can lead to pride. I can do it better than other people. Man, I am doing so much. Why aren't they helping me out? Tell them to help me because I am the only one that's really about serving people in this moment. We even have a case of sibling rivalry here in Scripture. This is the real world. Mary and Martha are kind of bickering amongst themselves, or at least Martha is at this point. I'm sure Mary wasn't exempt. But we have this prideful heart. and Man, I am doing this. Why wasn't anyone else helping out around me? Number three, serving can lead to idolatry. I alluded to this a minute ago, but, but serving can become our treasure when it was never designed to be our treasure. In other words, serving God can replace us knowing God and being devoted to God. So hopefully we haven't forgotten John's sermon from a couple of weeks ago when Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. That's what life's about. Knowing God, loving God, serving God, finding Him as our greatest treasure. Not what we do for Him, but Him. Jesus says, in your serving me, serve me, like capital M and capital E. This is about me. And we need to make sure that our serving doesn't lead to idolatry. Now let's just, as we move toward a finish here, let's look at four things that are a part of listening to, to Christ, listening to the Word of Christ. Number one, listening to the Word of Christ is a matter of priority. So again, I'll ask you, have you made any goals, made any resolutions for this year? Maybe you will after today. You'll kind of take Sunday afternoon. Hopefully you're off work. You can kind of spend, chill, think about what you want to see God do in and through your life this, this coming year. Well, let me ask you this. Where does, where does loving God and loving your neighbor reflected in those resolutions and goals? Is God the great priority of your life? Are you going to value listening to the word of Christ regularly? It's a matter of priority. How can we make God our priority? It's what we see here, Mary's example. We sit, we sit at the feet of Jesus and we listen to him. Number two, I think it's good to know that listening to the word of Christ is a gift. It's a gift. It's not something that we're entitled to. It's something that he has graciously given us. And this is even highlighted in this passage because Luke recounts this story of not a man sitting at the feet of Jesus, but a woman. And I love that about Luke. He's constantly showing how Jesus breaks social barriers all throughout the gospel. One scholar said that the picture of a woman in the disciples' position at the feet of Jesus would have been startling in a culture where women did not receive formal training from a rabbi. We saw this in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Women followed Jesus. They were part of his group of disciples that learned from him and followed him, were about ministering to and with him. So this is for everyone here. Christ's love is for everyone. 
It's a gift. And even more than that, we need to constantly be reminded that, listen, to listen to the voice of Christ, to listen to the voice of Christ and his word is to listen to the very voice of God. You can meet with God anytime you want to. You can hear from God anytime you open up this book. No one is stopping us except us. Here's a little practical tip. Just leave this open. Leave it open on your nightstand. Leave it open on your counter. Leave it open on your table. Leave it open on your couch. Buy a couple extra. Take a couple extra. Open them up. Well, we're fine with that. You know, take them. They're free. Take them, open them up around your house, and you just keep getting in the Word, hopefully. It's a gift, a privilege to listen to the voice of God. Then, number three, listening to the Word of Christ requires humility. I love this. This is a position, the posture of a disciple who has humility. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is low, listening before him, wanting to learn, wanting to receive what he has to say. Mary displays a teachable spirit. So do you have a teachable spirit before God? Like when you open up that book, I mean, are you doing it just because you know the pastor kind of encouraged us to last Sunday and my mom and my grandmama told me to do that and so like, you know, seven days a week, I'm going to try to do that. It's kind of this legalistic checklist that we, bam, did that, can enter it into my I run, you run, you know, account, did that, feel good about it, score just went up a little bit. Is that, is that why we do it? Or do we have a teachable spirit? Are we eager to learn from Christ? Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is a chapter that is entirely devoted to the worth of God's Word. And there is a prayer, a two-word prayer, that continues to surface again and again and again. And I hope it will be one of our prayers for 2013. I want to read a series of verses that unpack, hopefully, what can become this prayer for our new year. All right? Psalm 119, verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord. Here it is. Teach me your statutes. Verse 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. It's not enough just to read and to know, but we have to desire to keep them to the end. The, Lord, the earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. I love this one. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Verse 135. Now, listen. The last time we see this, this idea of teaching, teaching me statutes is found in what, verse 171. And what happens is the psalmist, probably David here, moves from prayer to praise. What does he say in verse 171? My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. You want to have a life, a heart that exalts God, that makes much of him, which is why we're here after all in the first place. What's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? 
as we learn and listen to his word. And it becomes part of who we are as we meditate on it and, and seek to live it out. Then God transforms us and moves us to give him praise with our life. So again, a question. What if your daily approach and posture before God in 2013 was summed up by these two words? Teach me. Teach me. To go to God in the morning, teach me. When you're struggling at work, God, teach me. What do you, what do you have to teach me in this moment? When things are going great, teach me, God. Would you be just a tad bit wiser at the end of this year? Would you be a tad bit more fulfilled? Would you have more joy? Would you be more equipped to serve God and potentially have the capacity to serve and glorify Him in greater ways? Let's make this our prayer. Teach me. And why is that? Is because listening to the word of Christ is always better. It's always better. Remember, this is a matter of priority. This is a matter of choice. When's the last time that you went to bed and said, man, I cannot wait to get up so that I can get in God's word and listen to his word and be taught from his word and my life transformed and have a different day today than I had yesterday because God equips me and helps me live life for him and for the sake of others too. I mean, do you ever just kind of at night, you know, when it's kind of chill mode time, right? I mean, end of a long day, worked really hard, did all we had to do, maybe even did a few things around the house that we were supposed to do, maybe. And, and then you just kind of, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but we all kind of have these things, whether it's, you know, internet, social media, reading, you know, articles or books or watching TV. Anybody do that? Um, do you ever just say, you know what, I can, I can push that to the side for the next 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever God leads you to do, and just say, you know what, God, teach me? That would be a pretty good choice. That would be a pretty good way to prioritize listening to the Word of Christ because listening to the Word of Christ is always better. And here's the really cool thing. When we get this, when we get, I mean, this is just part of our love for God, but it is a part, a key part. When we begin to listen to the word of Christ and love God and be transformed by him, we will be in a better position to love and serve our neighbor. Our vertical relationship with God will necessarily affect our horizontal relationship with God. I mean, I'll just put you to the test here. Here's a challenge for this week. Every day this week, not to be a legalist, but this is a challenge. Every day this week, just wake up and first thing, pray, teach me. Open up this rich treasure of a book and say, God, teach me. I don't care if it's for, you know, three minutes, five minutes. I mean, wherever you start somewhere and keep building, but God, teach me, I, I guarantee you you will be filled with the capacity, at least, to love others in greater and more tangible ways as you listen to the word of Christ. So what's the point? As we think about resolutions, as we think about goals, let's begin with this one. Let's reserve, resolve to love our neighbor and to listen to the word of Christ like never before. Resolve to love our neighbor and to listen to the word of Christ like never before. Now, listen to this. Here, here, here's just a gift, I think, from, from God to understand. When we resolve to love, we are pushed to live. 
You could, you could say this. A resolution to love is a resolution to live. And I can say this with greater confidence than I could have three days ago. See, my grandmother passed away on Thursday. So we had just returned from Kentucky on Monday and flew right back Friday morning and got back late last night after midnight. Thanks, John, for picking me up. And, um, and as I've now been to four funerals, actually officiated and, and spoke at four different funerals over the past two years, what I am learning about life is you have this, this awesome moment, right? Not only to honor God, but honor someone's life. And when people like my grandmother have lived a life of faith, lived a life of love for God and a clear and evident love for others, it is quite evident that they lived life to the full. As I think about my grandmother's life, man, she loved life. She loved people. She lived a full and abundant life. Now she dwells in the house of the Lord forever. And so a resolution to love is a resolution to live. And here's the gospel catch, okay? You will never love God and you will never love your neighbor until your life and heart is infused with the love of Christ. So have you received his love? This love that he poured out for us on the cross validated in power with his resurrected life. Jesus died because he loves us and he has poured out his love into our hearts for all who believe and trust in him. So whether you need to believe for the first time in Christ or you need to believe and be receiving his love for the millionth time, let's receive that great love so that we might turn and love him and love others. And all we do. Let's pray. God, it would be good for us to acknowledge that we are weak. We are filled oftentimes with such hope. We have such great plans and dreams and goals and resolutions that we often never see come to fruition. And yet, God, you give us strength. You give us grace to go on and do great things for you and glorify you in, in ways that you see fit. And so, Lord, that's our prayer this morning, God, for, for every person here, that you would convince them of your, of your matchless love for them and that you would fill them with it through faith that they might turn it back in love to you and give it away in love for others. God, may 2013 be that kind of year for Redemption Hill Church, for the people of Redemption Hill Church. God, help us to love like we've never loved before and experience the joy that follows in step with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.